KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. Crisis in Ukraine, the latest from KYW News Radio. An anti war rally at City Hall this afternoon attracted hundreds of people in support of Ukraine. KYW's Hadas Kuznets was there. We call upon the United States, we call upon the other freedom loving nations of this world to intervene. Many here at City Hall attending this anti war rally in support of Ukraine have family members stuck there amid the chaos. Ukrainian born Sophia tells me she's worried sick about her parents. There's no way to escape, there's nowhere to run. Nazar Shebyshevsky says his sister and her young family are stuck in Believe it or not, that report came just about one year ago when Russian forces first invaded Ukraine. There had been threats for years, but in February of 2022, many couldn't believe an all-out war was actually happening. People I was following, everyone was saying there won't be an invasion. Everyone was sure that that's impossible. It makes absolutely no sense. We were all wrong. And one year later on ABC News. As Russia launches more missile strikes, a residential building struck in Ukraine's second city, Kharkiv, causing a large fire. They are currently rescuing people from that building. At least one person killed. Where do things stand one year into this war? Is there an end in sight? Is the threat for Ukrainians the same or worse? Wars end when decision makers choose to stop them. At what point? Would Russia decide to negotiate or if Russia's back is against the wall, go to the unthinkable? I mean, the war of attrition on the one hand could make a population feel like let's negotiate and and end this. Um, But so far, it seems to have really made the Ukrainian population. It seems to have united them better. For this episode of KYW News Radio in depth, we reached back out to two people who have been helping us understand this crisis from the beginning. Dr. Lisa Baglioni is a professor of political science and a member of the International Relations Program at St. Joseph's University. And Dr. Melissa Chakars is an associate professor and chair of the Department of History at St. Joseph's University. So I'd like to start with just kind of a general question. We are weeks away from this war hitting the one-year point. Lisa, how surprised, saddened, I mean, how the fact that it has lasted this long, if I had said that to you a year ago, what would you have said? Well, it's strange to say that I I would have been surprised and, and a bit relieved because the fact that it had lasted this long meant that Ukraine had held out. But I say that with some horror, because that means that this war has gone on for so long. There's been so much suffering. So it's, that's a terrible thing to say. But yes, I, I, I did not expect it to go on. And so glad that Ukraine has been able to hold on. Same question to you, Melissa. Yeah, I, I think I would not have expected it to be so violent and the death toll to be so high at this point. I had expected that there would be a return to the sort of low-level fighting that had existed between 2014 and 2022. I expected that to happen much faster. I didn't didn't expect this this level of of violence. Is there any, do you see, barring something completely kind of off the strategic map, and when I say that, something nuclear or something that we don't really want to think about, is there any end in sight? And I'll start with you for that one, Melissa. Honestly, I don't see the end in sight. All wars have to end. So, of course, this is going to have to end at some point. But I think we're at a point where it is a war of attrition. So which side is going to be worn down first? 
from Ukraine's perspective, they will be worn down first unless they continue to get weapons from other countries. Um, and that could be the West, Europe, the United States. I've heard recently South Korea is sending weapons. It could be Australia. It could be other folks. But without weapons from other countries, this war of attrition will not go in Ukraine's favor. Russia has a lot more people, a lot more resources, a lot more land to put up with a much longer war of attrition. Lisa? Yeah, from what I understand... Uh, the Ukrainians are preparing for counteroffensives, and the Russians are also obviously throwing lots of bodies uh, at the conflict, and they have more bodies to use. That mobilization has been effective in that sense. Uh, same with using the the Wagner troops, and they are at this time those mobilized folks have been getting more training. And so so there is a real worry about improved quality of, of manpower on the Russian side. Ukrainians, um, as Melissa said, do not have the same amount in numbers. But the hope is, the belief is that these new weapons that are coming could shift the balance. And I would like to be hopeful and believe that the the tanks that are coming, the Patriot missiles, the other the other kinds of material will make a big difference. I don't know that that's that could be just being hopeful. Um, but that in another way is not necessarily that could lead us to a different kind of crisis because wars end when decision makers choose to stop them. And so other folks who analyze say, and you alluded to this, at what point would Russia decide to negotiate or if Russia's back is against the wall, go to the unthinkable. So so that's where we are. To that point, the unthinkable, there was a point where there seemed to be a lot of media worry that. Vladimir Putin could use a a nuclear weapon. And to be fair, the Russians have been very cavalier in throwing those types of threats around. I feel like from a perspective of someone who's just reading articles about this, that that fear has subsided. At least it's not talked about. Does that mean it's not as much of a concern or like so much in our society has the threat just kind of been normalized where it's like, yeah, it could happen. And we just don't talk about it and just wait to see if it could happen. I'll start with you, Melissa. Yeah, I think it's always a threat. Um, And I think that Putin will continue to use it as a possible threat. But I believe that the Russians, in some sense, even though they haven't been successful as militarily as much as they would have liked to have been, they are destroying Ukraine. Uh, They're destroying the infrastructure. They're killing thousands of people. Uh, they're knocked out at, at most something like 40% of its energy infrastructure, 50% of its water structure, 40% of its housing structure. So I think at the moment they're thinking that the war of attrition is going to work in their favor. So I think the nuclear option is not, not as much of a threat at this moment. I think that if the counteroffensive were to succeed, see, this is the, this is the issue when, when we would worry about, uh, the Russians turning to nuclear weapons and it would be Putin making that decision that Russian um, military doctrine integrates 
tactical nuclear weapons into its strategy in a way that Western military doctrine doesn't. And so the question is, if they are, you're absolutely right that there are so many losses in Ukraine, but if there was, were a successful counteroffensive mo- moving through and pushing them out of the Donbass more, then that's when I would worry. That's when I would worry about it. And we just don't know. It all depends on what, what Putin really would be up, up to. And it's interesting that he has, you know, he changed generals, as we know, of, of who's in charge, uh, moving from Surovikin to Gerasimov. And from what I understand, Surovikin's approach was successful in a sense in staunching the, the losses and, and setting up the defensive lines. But Gerasimov's mindset is offensive, whether he would then, with Putin's blessing, of course, uh, choose to, if they if they are losing too badly or if they are pushed back too badly, whether they would choose to go nuclear, I don't know. I mean, there would be huge consequences. And oftentimes folks say the big, the one big player or big question is how would, what messaging would China be giving? Yeah, that was one of the questions I had about China because from afar, I kind of feel like there are times when China is cozying up and then you kind of read other things that China's like, eh, let's settle down over there. I mean, is China trying to play both sides? Are they looking at this kind of just as transactional? What is the best for China? Could we expect them to take a a much broader role in, in helping Russia? Or is kind of what we're seeing now probably as far as they're willing to go? I'll start with you, Lisa. My assessment would be that China has been using this conflict to understand what are the the limits on its potential partners and adversaries? So the conflict in some ways helps China because Russia becomes a desperate uh, partner who will sell its oil and gas at much lower prices. It also is interesting to see how uh, Russian uh, tactics and, and arms match up to Western military material. Uh, it's also nice for China to see that the West is distracted, right, and is using up. I mean, when some of the things I listen to, folks talk about how concerned they are that that the West is using up, the U.S. is using up uh, material and, and artillery and all these things. But also, I think China was looking to see, oh, how did the world react? How would the world react if borders were changed? And so this has also been sobering for China uh, in in many ways because of the united or almost united uh, world reaction to Russia's uh, aggression. Uh, and as we know, China has its designs on Taiwan. Uh, and so so it has to be th- that's sobering. I, I think that the Chinese, they couldn't stop Putin but uh, to, to take these actions to invade. But I'm not so sure they were that thrilled about it, unless it was an easy victory. Yeah, I would say China is a global power and it wants to be an even greater global power. And in order to do that, it's not going to take one side. Um, instead, it's going to, I think, as you're saying, cautiously watch and see what's going to be the best path for China. I think China is happy to see this be a distraction as it tries to build its Silk Road across Eurasia, as it tries to have greater power in Africa. And so I think uh, I think China's not going to take one side. I think it's going to it's going to try to play both sides. We talked about earlier or referenced how Ukraine has gotten this steady flow of weapons. And obviously, 
President Joe Biden and the U.S. leading the way. Uh, Joe Biden has done a really good job of kind of rallying NATO from day one and, you know, keeping everybody in line. But for the first year of this war, Joe Biden had a trifecta with obviously him in the White House, Democrats leading the Senate and the House. Still has, the, obviously, the White House, still has the Senate, but now the Republicans control the House, and, of course, the House is where the purse strings are, and I honestly couldn't tell you what the Republican stance on this war is, because it feels like it's all over the place, depending on who's talking in the caucus. Are we concerned that the U.S., not the support would dry up, but that the weapons and the money could dry up just because House Republicans see it through the lens of how the, does this help us politically? Uh, yeah, I think it's absolutely a concern, certainly for Ukraine. I think Ukraine has to think about how to build bridges with some of the Republicans, um, have to convince some of the Republicans that the weapons aren't just disappearing into a black hole. What's the accountability? I think that's a question that I've seen Republicans asking, convincing them that it's the right thing to do. On Monday, I went to a live stream interview with um, Anatoly Fyodoruk, who is the mayor of Bucha, and it was led by the Wilson Center, which is a nonprofit think tank in D.C., uh, and of course, he was asked, you know, why should Americans care? What what should why are we in this war? Why are we helping in this war? And his answer was that the United States and Ukraine have the same goals. We want to stop authoritarianism. We want to uphold international law. We want to protect freedom and democracy. And by helping Ukraine, which is on the front lines, the United States is helping to do that. And he stressed, you know, that the United States is a global power and other countries look to the United States and Europe in particular, the European Union, NATO looks to the United States as a leader. So thinking in those terms about the United States continuing to be a leader is, I think, one way to think about this moving forward. And Lisa, I'd like to kind of repivot that question to you, because you look at the Republican caucus, it's also a very narrow majority that the Republicans have. So it's not it would not take much. You're not going to get, I think, a unified Republican caucus. How much does that play into how difficult a tightrope are leaders walking here in the U.S. of trying to maintain what they've maintained and how much could the Republicans, how much fight could they really put up? Because, you know, it's not the whole caucus that would be against this. Right. It's it's really hard. I mean, what we saw in er, in early January was the speaker or the almost speaker making concessions that many folks didn't expect and many observers were really worried and have been continued to be worried about McCarthy's lack of 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 principle and i think that is more what what we have to worry about at what point i mean i it it to me again older person who remembers the Cold War so well and remembers the Republican stance throughout the Cold War so well that this is the Republican Party um, questioning the uh, support of a state that is seeking to be to build democracy and standing up to an authoritarian power that is Russia. And it's not a, a Russia that shares much with American values. It's it's very and has a lot of power to hurt the United States and has violated international law. It's shocking. But I but you're right that there 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 should be a people within the House uh, Republican caucus who would not go along with cutting off Ukraine. Uh, the, the question is what what McCarthy will do, how 
the, the committees will handle um, appropriations and other things. That, I think, is, is the big worry. But uh, I'd like to believe, and I think with uh, two weeks ago or last week, when Zelensky fired some folks in Ukraine over potential corruption or, or corruption issues, I think that was really designed for the United States and for Western allies to show them we're not just going to waste the mo- waste money or we, we are going to make sure things are used, your, your funding is used appropriately. So I think that was important. It brings out, it brought corruption again to the to, to um, headlines. But um, I think showing that they are responsible stewards, that's really important for keeping the money flowing. Melissa, we talk about Vladimir Putin, and I feel like throughout this year, every so often a story bubbles up that he's losing support. Some of the oligarchs aren't happy and stuff like that. And, you know, I think everybody takes a big hit of hopium that maybe something could happen internally and nothing seems to change at the top level. Is there any indication when you look at this kind of past headlines that there is any sort of possibility for internal power shifting, even a coup, or is this just something that, you know, somebody that is unhappy with Putin feeds to Western journalists and it kind of goes through the news cycle and then we're done? Yeah, I think uh, many of us are hopeful that something will happen to remove Putin from power. But unfortunately, that that hasn't happened. And, and the signs for that happening are not anything that we can confirm. Um, you know, there's been rumors that he was sick. Uh, there's been rumors that, you know, somebody within his circle might overthrow him. Um, but I think, as Lisa just mentioned, the jockeying of of generals, the moving around, that seems to be more of what we're seeing. Um, and some of those generals have their own 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 fights to fight within themselves. And therefore, it's it's more of them trying to please Putin rather than them trying to overthrow Putin, unfortunately. But then again, I think it's pretty impossible to predict what might happen in the future in terms of Putin. One thing we do know is the mobilization that occurred in the fall of 2022 was very unpopular. Upwards of 200,000, 250,000 Russians have left. And that is continuing to be the case. Men in their 40s don't want to fight. And they're knocking on doors of men in their 40s. And I think, you know, as this continues, that this is very unpopular. So that could lead to some discontent that might help to change Putin's strategy. But um, as Lisa also mentioned, Russia has a very large uh, uh, population that that Russia has doesn't seem to have any problems at throwing at war um, and using infantry as cannon fodder. Yeah. And Lisa, kind of follow up on that. In addition to the stories bubbling up about, well, Putin could be in trouble. We have seen a lot in fits and starts of popular uprisings, of demonstrations. Now the Russians drop the hammer and arrest everybody. But if this is so unpopular, you know, in the U.S., if something's that unpopular, it eventually hits a tipping point with an election or a resignation or something like that. Given the structure of Russian society, is there tipping points for the masses where it could get so big or so discontent or we can't look at it through a Western lens of how things would work. Like would it just, they would just continue to be more brutal and more brutal in their crackdowns on the public. Well, this is a personalist system. So that means that when we think about leaders who are accountable to constituents, 
the constituents are not broadly defined as the population. Yes, Putin has done a great job creating a propaganda machine to to win their the the trust and the support and the adoration of the vast percentage of Russians. We do hear about the people who protest and they are brave, but I I do think they are a small minority and I don't think it's just because they're afraid and intimidated. I think that the that the ecosphere or the yeah, not the ecosphere, the media sphere and the the feelings there are just about this is our leader who has who is protecting us in against the the aggression that the west was engaging in against us. So he so he is protecting us. This war was necessary. Um, within the regime, the people who survive are loyalists. I've heard, and you've probably heard this again and again, they say that, you know, this the Russian system, anybody who is really talented is not in there anymore because the only way to, to survive and to, to thrive is to be loyal first and foremost. And so you've got a system of loyalists and a leader who... Uh, expects that loyalty. So these kinds of systems, historically, they collapse in very bloody and dramatic ways. You know, if you think about uh, Gaddafi or something like that. So it would be really surprising um, to imagine popular uprisings that would take Putin down. I also found this study that came out by the um, Chicago Council of World Affairs and the Levada Center, which was really... It really disappointed me um, in many ways, but it was talking about how so many, a very large percent of, of Russians are not feeling the impact of sanctions. They don't worry about sanctions. Uh, and this was conducted with the Levada Center, which is a really highly respected uh, public opinion organization that is in Russia, and that the problems that the sanctions are creating are not that significant. And so it, it, it's, I mean, while... In some ways, American policy has learned that we shouldn't make populations suffer so much when we, you know, we don't want to see all these people dying because of sanctions. But to have the impression that the sanctions are doing so little, um, that pressure is not there uh, in society, that worries me. And I think you probably saw today's New York Times and maybe it was also in yesterday's talking about the various routes that are, are have been developed through uh, the Caucasus, through parts of Central Asia and China and Turkey, in which Russians are getting supplied the things that regular people want, cell phones, washing machines, refrigerators. And, um, you know, I would think if the sanctions were more uh, effective, not saying that that's possible, that they could be, but that would give me more hope that there could be more pressure, even if it wasn't that people were uh, demonstrating, it would be that Putin and the regime would be worried that there's more discontent. And and one last thing, a lot of the folks that are dying, um, or the, the the people who have 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 really been pulled, and I'm sure Melissa knows this better than I. They've come from the hinterlands. They've come. They're not coming from Moscow and Saint Petersburg. They're they're disproportionately ethnic minorities. Uh, then, of course, they're the, um, you know, the prisoners, the, the Wagner group prisoners. So these are not folks that, that the powerful and even a lot of ordinary Russians care that much about. I don't know. 
Melissa, anything to add? Yeah, I agree. I, I agree completely. Um, I think that, yes, the, the people that are being called up are often the minorities. They're often living in the hinterlands and then now using these prisoners. I mean, but I did read that there's something like 300,000, 350,000 male prisoners in Russia right now. And you now some statistics say that Wagner's already recruited 40,000 and maybe 40 or 50,000 and a large number have died. There's only so much of this that can continue to happen. You only have a certain amount of prisoners you can call on. Um, and then now being releasing these prisoners, if they do make it through the six months right. uh, or their contract is up, then they're being released, often very violent criminals being released back into society. That could cause some problems for for regular Russians. Yeah. Yeah. The, the Times was just reporting on that yesterday. And then, and then also how damaged these people, even these people are traumatized because they were in the worst of the worst yeah. fighting. Yep. And we need to take a break. We will continue our conversation with Dr. Lisa Balioni and Dr. Melissa Chuckars right after this. This is KYW News Radio in depth. And we are back continuing our conversation about the first year of the Russia Ukraine war. And our guests are St. Joseph's University professors, Dr. Lisa Balioni and Dr. Melissa Chuckars. I'm curious because we look so much and so much of the discussion, and not for obvious reasons, focus is kind of on the Russian population and you talk about how a lot of people the sanctions aren't affecting they're pretty much able to to live their lives that's not the case in ukraine and you referenced earlier one of the russian you know objectives here is they're just destroying the country going out of their way to destroy infrastructure and stuff like that ukraine is fighting the right fight for the right reasons but is there any indication that the people of ukraine are starting to and I don't mean want to surrender, but all this is wearing on them. They're home for two months and they've got to evacuate and they haven't can't use their cell phone. The The shop they used to go to was destroyed, stuff like that. Is there any indication that Ukrainians are starting to look for some way to end this? And I'll start with you, Lisa. I haven't seen any systematic polling. From what I understand, there's just a commitment. This is a life and death battle. Right. That that from their perspective, and there's a lot of evidence to say this is the a correct perspective, that Russia is engaged in genocide uh, and, and ethnic cleansing. And so this is a battle for their lives. And yes, they're exhausted. And yes, they're traumatized. And yes, sometimes I think uh, there was, again, some quotes recently in, in, in other sources where Ukrainian fighters at times can feel so overwhelmed. Like, what are we going to do? They just keep throwing, they just keep throwing more bodies at us and they don't care what happens to those bodies. But from my understanding, and and some of this is very, very much due to the leadership of Ukraine. I do think, again, the, the support that comes from the West is also really important to show them we've, we've got your back. I don't see them backing down. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think um, one, I mean, the war of attrition on the one hand, could make a population feel like, let's negotiate and, and end this. Um, but so far, it seems to have really made the Ukrainian population, it has, seems to have united them better. And they now have a kind of narrative of injustice and human rights abuses and war crimes. And they want to see this to the end so that Russia is punished and does not conquer and take over their country. We heard so much early on about one of the big concerns was... You know, yes, Russia is backwards. Yes, Russia has a lot of issues, but they've got this oil and gas industry and 
A lot of countries are dependent on that. I know a lot has been done, caps put on certain countries, shutting off. But are they still getting the income they need from that oil and gas that, despite everything that's happened, it hasn't made a fundamental difference in uh, kind of economically what the, the Russians are able to do, Melissa? Yeah, I think that's a that's a that's a still a question mark. Um, you know, the Russian Gazprom, you know, the main Russian um, gas supplier is not um, giving uh, any statistical evidence of what their losses are over 2022. Um, so, you know, it's hard to know again in an authoritarian society what, what the statistics are. Um, obviously, though, their sale to to Europe has incredibly declined. Um, they're shopping for other buyers, and of course, they use it for their own domestic use. I think I initially really, when this war started, thought this would be something that would would impact the war more quickly. But I'm sort of surprised to say that I it, it doesn't seem to be doing so as much as I expected. Yeah, I guess I, the way I would look at it is that it, it appears that they have found ways to subvert sanctions and to get the money they need from oil and gas. There was just a report about how it looks like they've got tankers that are somehow fueling other tankers in the in international waters and then sending it elsewhere. So so yes, where there's a will, there's a way. But I but over the long term, there have been shifts in how Western Europe and the US or, or Europe and the US looks at at oil and gas. You know, that's good for, for climate change reasons. It's bad for for Russia because it won't be able to charge the same amount that it could charge to the West. But unfortunately, the whole globe depends still on fossil fuels. Uh, and so there will be markets, you know, unless unless there are other a new change in how we view fossil fuels. But it just makes Russia more dependent. They're not also instead taking their time, their energy, their resources to figure out how do we retool? How do we how do we really develop uh, beyond oil and gas and making military um, military power? So, yeah. We talked about Vladimir Putin and whether we could see something happen internally. Once again, I'd like to kind of flip it. I mean, everyone's been incredibly impressed with Vladimir Zelensky, the Ukrainian president. But you mentioned Lisa earlier, he fired some people for corruption. We know Russians have their hands kind of in everything. Is there any kind of concern that Russia could put the screws to people and create internal government problems for Zelensky? And I mean, I don't know if a coup would be possible, but really change the dynamic in internal Ukrainian government that really changes the way this thing goes. And I'll, I'll start with you, Melissa. Yeah, I mean, that was Russia's initial strategy. That was the plan. And they have tried that really since since Putin came to power in the early 2000s. Um, and it has had a deep impact on Ukraine. I think what's interesting with the, this war starting in 2022 um, is that the violence and again, again, you know, I've said it a couple of times, the human rights abuses, the war crimes, all of the terrible things that have happened have actually turned many Ukrainians who were once pro-Russia now anti-Russia. And so I, I don't see that happening. But I think you do make a good point that Zelensky is um, he's a hero for Ukrainians. And so the fact that he has to stay alive and continue to be a leader is, is really important for, for most Ukrainians in this war. Lisa? Yeah, and I would agree with Melissa. As Melissa said, I think the chances of this happening, have, in other words, that Russia could 
interfere with domestic politics have declined so greatly unless it were a violent attack, right? Unless they assassinated him, which I'm not saying that they couldn't do, but that would also be an enormous crossing of a violating an an important international norm. Uh, So, no, I think that that Ukrainians are are behind Zelensky. I mean, you've got to remember, you don't want to surrender to, like you're surrendering to people that you you know would want to kill you or wipe you out or destroy you it's not a good choice right um you know if putin had conducted this war in a different way he could have pro- probably won over more ukrainians but the nature of this war the level of the atrocities the violence and the continuing desire to make people suffer ukrainians suffer i that is galvanized the nation and and again, uh, Zelensky's leadership has been brilliant, um, and his ability to communicate and to to show his humanity and his concern for his people that it's been it's been brilliant. We talked about the U.S.'s support and what we could see from you know with the Republicans in charge of the House. We have seen almost universal support in the West, but you know. We'll wait and see what happens with the Republicans. Germany got a little weird when it came to giving tanks, a certain type of tank to Ukraine. How confident are you, Melissa, that the Western backing will stay as firm as it has been as we move into the second year of this? Or is it just this clear authoritarian versus democracy fight that everybody kind of understands how important this is kind of to the maintaining the world order. Yeah, I think from the perspective of the United States and and American taxpayers, they're going to be looking to have NATO foot more other NATO members foot more of this bill. Um, It is frustrating when Germany is not giving up tanks. Um, But I think even expanding, right? So the United States has asked South Korea to give weapons um, as Australia is involved. Uh, You know, it may be looking for other partners even outside of NATO. But but yes, the United States can't do this alone. It could be a leader. Uh, It can continue to help and and facilitate. But we but NATO is really going to have to step up. That's that's something I see absolutely necessary in the future. I mean, I was worried in the spring with the French elections and then later this fall with the Italian elections, the sweet Swedish elections. But instead, you know, thankfully, the right extremists in France didn't win. Uh, in Italy, we're still not sure what's going on in in Germany. In Germany, from what I understand, the especially uh, Olaf Scholz, the, his government, they were concerned about crossing a line that had been established in the post-war post-world war ii era of german aggression uh and they were thinking that by authorizing these tanks it it was a step too far and they were waiting for the u.s to also uh authorize the tanks because of the and and it, it was the timing of it too happening around uh holocaust remembrance day this was all very sensitive for the germans and so They've made the step and they're trying to show that this is a this is not an aggressive Germany. This is a Germany supporting democracy, supporting Europe. Um, The other weak link is obviously Hungary. Right. Hungary is is a very concerning power um, as its leader 
or Viktor Orban uh, is close with Putin, uh, also authoritarian. Um, he is a problem. He can cause problems in decision making in the EU, uh, in NATO. And at times there's worry about the polls because they are not exactly uh, they have problems with their own quality of their democracy. But at, with the polls, there is enough historical animosity towards the Russians and that they have remained firmly in the Western camp. And, and so I think I think that right now, I mean, again, these are we have to worry about elections and citizens all over the, the globe are, are suffering because of the effects of of inflation that are related to the war as well as related to covid. So it's complicated, but I I'm more relieved now than I was so we'll see. And and also, I do think other states are, the evidence is they are uh, increasing their spending, seeing this. I mean, the Europeans are realizing, oh my gosh, if Ukraine falls, we're not too far away, right? Whether Putin has those designs or not, that's the, that is a fear. And my final question, and I say that sadly, because I could talk to you two for hours. What could we see as an end to this? Because from the outside, I could see this ending from the the, the horrific nightmare of a, a nuke going off somewhere to Vladimir Putin one day walking out to a, a desk and saying, we won, congratulations, everybody's coming home, whether he won or not, just declaring that's what it is, and that is just Russian lore from that point on. I, I mean, I guess the question is, what would an end look like and as things stand right now, I know you guys hate to prognosticate, but what would you say is the most likely way this thing could end? Melissa, I'll start with you. Yeah, you know, obviously I've been thinking about this a lot and I've been reflecting on the past year of this war. And I think one thing that has really surprised me is that, you know, it's 2022, 2023. Um, I sort of expected this war to be more modern somehow, that we would be looking at drones and cyber attacks and satellite communications and that would be definitive. And I think in the end, what you hear repeatedly is people who visit Ukraine, people who are in Ukraine, people who talk about the photographs, is that it looks like World War II. Um, and so that has has kind of surprised me. And I think the World War II aspect of it gets back to this war of attrition, um, just absolutely destroying all of the infrastructure of Ukraine. I think, again, and this is where I was maybe even a little bit a year ago, that it would not be surprising to see the scaling back to a kind of low level war again, as we saw between 2014 and 2022. Um, and that would go back to some fighting in the Donbass that would go back to fighting in Ukraine. I mean, in Crimea, I'm sorry. And so um, that's 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 what I would rather than say have us turn to nuclear weapons. Lisa? Yeah, I I'm going to be bold and I don't know if I should be bold. I mean, I actually I don't I shouldn't be bold, but I'm going to be. I if the Ukrainian counteroffensive works and some people have a lot of faith that it can work, that there's going to be so much high quality material technology that they can push the Russians back to where they were in 2022 and then some. And I think that I'm going to hope that at that point there is going to be a call for suing for peace and that Putin will somehow define this as a victory and say that he has defeated the West and the danger. Putin has a 
a presidential election coming up in 2024. Not that not that he really has to worry about those things, but he has to have he has to have the performance of the election. And I think that that might loom in his and the others minds. And that could be my wishful thinking. Of course, Zelensky has an election too coming and I'm forgetting if it's 2023 or 20, 2024, I think. And we have one, too. So I'm being hopeful, which is not my way. But I would, I'm going to say that we're going to see success. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio In-Depth. You can listen to the podcast free anytime on the Odyssey app. And you can find it wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon.